0: So this morning I want to complete, uh, as best I can, this the, the cycle of um, four mornings, looking at the theme of emptiness and compassion, and today I'll do a brief review of where we've been on this theme, but I'll mostly focus on <clears throat> both... Um, Compassion, and then how compassion connects with this notion of emptiness. And those of you who've been here know that, these these last weeks, know that the very term emptiness is um, sometimes confusing. And we've tried to explicate it and last time did some practical exercises to help bring out a very ordinary meaning. Uh, and it's, it's, an, it's an awkward translation into English where it often for many people connotes meaninglessness or emotional emptiness, some kind of problematic uh, internal state, whereas in the use of the term in the Asian languages it's much more, it's a little clearer sense, in some sense even a more positive sense, of uh, especially the lack of a separate, solid, independent self and set of selves and a lack of an independent set of uh, of objects. So it takes us away from the sense of thinking we're all these isolated individual beings in this world with other isolated independent beings who somehow try to Um, in the words of Rodney King, get along together, (laughs) you know, even though we're we're separate. It's it's a little bit of a bleak situation to imagine we're all these independent, separate beings all trying to somehow find happiness in this this world. And so the attention is drawn to that sense of separateness, solid, independent, and uh, maybe an alternative set of words for emptiness might be openness or even interconnection, permeability. It's interesting that actually in the Pali and Sanskrit languages themselves, as I mentioned I think two times ago, the very word for emptiness actually has these double connotations, partly of being Empty or missing something, which is why we translate it as emptiness, you know, and particularly missing that solid or lacking that uh, solid separate self. But it also has a connotation of um, being swollen, or I mentioned almost like pregnant, full of possibilities. In that sense, dynamic, creative, and. Both senses are there in the, in the uh, Asian terms, but when we translate as emptiness, we lose that second sense of more of interconnection and fullness. So um, we might think of it, uh, translate it as emptiness slash fullness, or just when we see that word, give it that, that special set of connotations rather than let the typical pre-practice connotations of emptiness <coughs> be there. The larger context for this teaching of emptiness and compassion is the teaching that, at at its core, our practice is about developing both wisdom and compassion. And emptiness is a kind of special way of looking at part of what wisdom means. Uh, And so, uh, last time I quoted the the, uh, great sage Nisargadatta, who said, Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing, between the two my life flows. Uh, love says I am everything, the sense of that interconnection, lack of boundaries in a way. Wisdom says I am nothing, it's more that focus on the emptiness, the lack of solidity. Between the two my life flows, so there's this sense, paradoxical in a way, that there are these two core impulses that we have in our lives, to, to know clearly, to be wise, to see the world and reality clearly, and secondly, to, to love, to have our hearts open. We could say it's our intelligence and our hearts, and how to bring them together. It's almost like they sometimes seem to speak different languages. That's why even in the, the quote I just gave, there's a sense of paradox, one everything, the other nothing. How do you bring those together? And that's what this teaching is about, how to explore more deeply how the heart and the mind come together, how our wisdom and our compassion um, come together. Last time, we looked at uh, several very practical ways to explore the sense of emptiness or emptiness slash, uh, slash fullness. We looked first at the examination of the flow of experience, which is really the perhaps the main way that the Buddha taught on emptiness, which he says, said, look carefully at experience. And if you look carefully with depth and with continuity, you'll tend to see much more of a flow of experience. And you can also see where you interrupt the flow or interpret the flow and say, that's me, <laughs> you know, that's my thought. I just had this thought about how I'm really empty. Aren't I great for having that thought?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> People do have that kind of reflections when they practice meditation, you know. They're completely absurd, but, they, but they're, they happen, you know, like... Um, I I remember being given once instructions for a retreat um, after I think my teacher was picking up that I was sometimes very much uh, trying to get meditation right and do it right and do all this. And he said, for the next ten days I want you to do nothing, but don't be distracted. He said, "Don't, don't, don't meditate. Don't do any meditation techniques, but don't be distracted. And I noticed, it was actually, I mean, this, this wasn't, these weren't beginning instructions. <laughs> you know, this came after, uh, well, uh, 20 years of practice. Okay, so it was not, give it to a beginner and it, for most people it wouldn't uh, work so well. Um, but, but so there was some capacity to be aware without trying to be aware, without trying to be mindful. But what, uh, what was very interesting, there were a lot of things that were really interesting about that experience, but one of the things that was really interesting was that I noticed myself at some point saying, I'm really doing this non-doing really, really well. <laughs> so there's that, there's that paradox. We, we look to the flow of experience and we see where do I fix on certain parts of experience? Where do I make them me? Where do I claim them to be me? I did that well, or this is really me. This is not me. Or that better not be me. <laughs> or something something like that. And we're we're really instructed to look carefully at that flow. And as we do that more, we see, we come to see where we tend to uh, react to the flow. One of the most obvious places is that we just notice that, with physical discomfort. We tend to react and try to manipulate our experience so it won't be there and shift sometimes. But, but and one of the great learnings very early on in our practice for many of us is when we're sitting with a knee pain or a back pain that we know is not doing damage and we just sit there and we watch our conditioning of not wanting to be with the unpleasant. Or we sit and we watch, how do I not want to be with this emotion? How do I wish that my anger would go away or my sadness would go away? And this huge part of our practice is to learn to be with the flow without eternally trying to manipulate it. uh, To gain the pleasant typically and to avoid the unpleasant typically. And so that's, uh, that's really our core practice. Our mindfulness practice ultimately takes us towards having experiences where we can in a sense just be with the awareness of the flow and watch everything coming and going and being with that flow we can see suffering uh, arise we can see ourselves pushing away certain parts of experience and we can learn to relax to be with that sense of flow which is really in a sense an experience of that quality of emptiness of being with our experience um, more as a kind of internal, internal flow. We also looked at the, a second way to approach emptiness in a more ordinary way, a more accessible way maybe, is to see where are the experiences where we've um, had this, what we might call a full flow experience, where we, where we uh, are fully engaged with an activity. It might be meditation, it might be um, doing our work, it might be being with people very close to us, where there's this sense of full flow without self-consciousness, without self-reference. Sometimes we experience this in nature. They're usually peak experiences, you know, and I referred to, to particular kinds of activities where these sometimes happen more often, such as uh, people playing music, something like jazz, where there's just in a sense of being in that flow with without uh, commenting on it and without self-reference, you know, as a improvisational musician, if one steps back and say, wasn't that a good lick? The moment's destroyed, more or less, typically. You know, it, it, you know that's typically a way to um, stop the flow or make it disturbed in some way. And, so, and these experiences, for most of us, I imagine we've talked about them, we've had them, but they're not so common. And maybe they're, probably we can particularly remember these moments because we often call them peak experiences where we have just been so fully involved with something that there's no sense of self and we're just with the movement of the activity. And I quoted some passages in the Taoist tradition. That's a kind of an ideal of how one should do any activity. You know, and I, I read something of the master woodcarver who trains to get to that state, but actually does, we might say, the art in that state of, we could call it emptiness-fullness. And you know, I think talking about the, something like music or uh, art, where I also mentioned sports is another place where this occurs, where uh, athletes talk about being in the zone, where there's just the complete flow of people expressing their gifts and there, it's, it's often quite uncanny, you know, what, what can happen. And that, I think that suggests the balance between this lack of self or lack of anything stopping the flow with creativity, you know, because out of that state, tremendous creativity comes. We see that in the music or the art or the, the um, sports, and we may see that in our own personal experiences where we've maybe been with people we're very close to where we just don't have a sense of needing to be anyone other than ourselves. You know, and these are very typically very special moments. And something just keeps on moving and I don't have to think about defending myself or showing how good I am or you know, bad I am or whatever. You know, and so th- this is a second area which I think we can both pay attention to and invite <laughs> invite to be present more you know somehow and so, I think some of times our meditation practice can help us to go into those areas like that and the third uh, more accessible way I think to um, access emptiness was in the set of exercises we did last time uh, and for anyone not there they're on the recording of the class, which is accessible at Dharma Seed, I think many of you know that. This is in the middle of the talk. Advertising break. <laughs> and now back to our talk.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, but those those three exercises were. I think there are actually four exercises that were developed originally with Julie Wester, who also teaches here. When I mean, we called it "being with ordinary objects," and you can just another way to access emptiness, more in the sense of interconnection, is to just give attention to ordinary objects. And we had these four exercises of I take this, what I call a pen, and first I can immerse myself in being aware of it with all my senses. You know, there's something about breaking from the utilitarian mode that we often approach the world with, in, I guess, in, uh, where this is only here in a functional way for me to accomplish something. And instead, I take an object, whether it's my shirt or a pen or the bell, and I give it attention. I can do the same with people because we often approach people in the same way. This person is only there as a means to my end sometimes you know at times we do that and can I give just attention to this person as a phenomenon happening in experience and uh, again this artist would do this as a way to access certain ways of seeing so I can just be with this five minutes just be with the pen be present with it feel it look at it you know Manipula, you know, explore it in different ways. And the second exercise was to, using the imagination, get a sense of the causes and conditions, to not see this so much just as a thing happening here, but rather as a product of this vast web of causes and conditions that go back, you know that could be traced back to the first human being who developed a writing implement. right It's connected to that. You know, to have this sense of this isn't just this separate object right here, but this is in a vast web of causes and conditions that goes to the company, the store it was bought at, the people who designed it, the the whole set of causes and conditions. And we can do that with our imagination. And doing this every day can be quite transformative because the whole aim of all of these practices is to come more to a sense of being in this web of beings who are connected to us and whom we can feel empathy for and respond to. That's the direction we go, and the same with objects. And so these exercises can be helpful. And the third exercise was to also more, in a heart-opening way, just to very simply Express gratitude towards this object. Again, normally we're in the utilitarian mode. Here we express, oh, thank you, ballpoint pen. You know, And it changes things, right? It's like it's done in Zen a lot. We don't do so much here in Zen. They, uh, uh, Zen practitioners bow to their cushions. They bow to each other, expressing that sense of gratitude. You know, or I have one of my favorite books, which I sometimes read here, is about St. Francis, and he goes through the whole day saying, You know, it's a book by the founder of the Bread and Puppet Theater up in Vermont. You know, and it, in the book, he, he, it, it, it's just it's a book of woodblocks, basically, and it's very short. I sometimes read the whole book in a, in a Dharma talk because it like takes a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but St. Francis is just saying, He wakes up and says, thank you, body. He wiggles his toes and says, thank you, toes. He has his morning coffee. There wasn't coffee when he was living in Italy, but in the book there is. He says, thank you, coffee. Thank you, milk. And he just goes about a lot of his day saying that, you know. It can shift things. And the last exercise was to role-play the object. So last time, for those of you not here, we had, you know, I rolled, I I think I I I role-played the um, striker. And so I, I don't know if I... I forget what I role-played. But, but anyway, we role-played it and it, it brings in some play and humor and so forth. And, and so these are practices that I, I really like them. And they can really bring us into that sense of the interconnection of things, which is this other sense of emptiness. Uh, Nargajana, the great philosopher of emptiness from the second century, said... Uh, made this link between the, as it were, the sense of emptiness as meaning empty of separateness with the sense of interconnection. He said, when emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. What's interesting and I think can reflect a deepening of our practice is when we start to see the link between this this quality of emptiness and compassion. And I think when we look to the meaning of interconnection as a way of understanding emptiness that it becomes more obvious that we cultivate a sense of interconnection and in those exercises, mostly those were done from the point of view of seeing clearly, more from the point of view of our wisdom, our intelligence, but there's also this heart quality that comes out, that we call more by the name of compassion. Essentially, we come to develop a way of seeing in which we're related to each other, and the claim is that that is the way it is, actually, That that our capacity for compassion, which we probably all experienced to some extent at the end of our sitting when we heard different Um, stories, we heard different accounts, some of them of people um, in moments of suffering with experiences of suffering, there was probably some heart opening there, some sense of compassion, you know, and it's uh, the question is how does that opening of our hearts relate to the sense of being interconnected and not being a separate self? I remember there was one of Woody Guthrie's songs. He talked about us being just one big heart, I, I believe, if I, can, if I remember accurately. You know, he said it may be that way. I think it was the ballad of Tom Joad. I think you know some of you may know that, that song. I, I believe it's in that song. And um, uh, I think Bruce Springsteen s- sings it also. So anyway, someone can do research on that. <laughs> Um, and so, compassion becomes the other expression. As we deepen in an emptiness and understanding of emptiness, compassion naturally grows. Similarly, we can take the opening of the heart and we can work with that, and that will tend to lead to a sense of interconnection and emptiness. They go together. Similarly, if we have a sense of emptiness without a development of compassion, it will tend to be distorted, unbalanced, tend maybe to be overly theoretical or overly intellectual. And similarly, if we have a sense of compassion without that sense of interconnection and emptiness, it can be overly self-centered, which can t- will tend to lead to burnout. You know, I, Donald, have to hold all the suffering just with me rather than have it be something out there in the world that we share with. And so some of the ways that compassion gets distorted or hard to hold are related to the lack of the development of emptiness and interconnection. So that's a subtle teaching. So let's look at it a little bit more from the side of developing compassion and try to bring out a few themes and then we can open things up. In the classical teachings of the Buddha, compassion is the natural response of the open heart when suffering is present, sometimes said to be the quivering of the heart. And we've we've looked here, the, these Wednesdays often, with myself or Sylvia, at this wonderful teaching called the Brahmavihara, vihara which are really the stations of the heart. And we see how loving-kindness is understood as The open heart, and we try to cultivate that in our practice, just the basically the wishing well for self and others, that basically kind heart, which we all have, but we cultivate it further. And that kind heart, that kind heart that wishes well in general, when it encounters suffering becomes compassion, it's the response of the open heart to suffering, when it encounters beauty or someone else's happiness, it becomes joy in its mature state. And, the, and when it can rest with wisdom in the heart, it becomes equanimity. And I think we cultivate all of these in that practice at the end of the morning. In a sense, that's a practice sometimes that may evoke compassion, sometimes it may evoke joy, um, sometimes it may evoke uh, I think in the long run a sense of balance of being able to be with all of this because we get all of it in the morning in this small 5 or 6 minute period we we you know in part our practice is can i just be with this and be fully it doesn't mean i have to be balanced i can be sometimes knocked around but can i just be with it and increasingly as we can be with it this is our practice we become more balanced so we develop compassion in a few different ways. We partly develop it through mindfulness. And so mindfulness is a a key way of developing a sense of emptiness. It's also a key way to develop compassion. And whereas maybe with emptiness we more look to the sense of flow, in the development of compassion it's more from the being present and being willing to be present with a moment of suffering. You know, that, and then we can tune into it. Compassion is the ability to tune into suffering and be present with it and not be knocked around so much. Not be taken to a place either of pulling away or trying in a somewhat um, conditioned way to fix things. You know? And so just in a very simple way. I was noticing this morning as I was sitting, my neck felt stiff. I can tune into that. I can notice part of me just doesn't want it like that. You know, just small things, not a huge deal. But part of our practice, I can just tune, I tuned into my neck and I could just be with it. I could be with the part of myself that says, no, this shouldn't be like this. There's some suffering there. There's some small suffering. You know, this shouldn't be like that. And I can tune in and just watch myself struggle in a very small way with my neck being stiff. That's the kind of thing we investigate. Of course, we can investigate it with more dramatic or more um, um, significant types of suffering. We can be with it. We can be with our sadness or my anger or my fear or my um, being with some of the situations that were described at the end of the sitting. I can be with it and I can watch myself um, not want that experience to be there and I can come back and learn to be more present with what's there, with the sadness, with the way my body feels, and so forth. All guided by wisdom as to what's wise to do. Sometimes it's not wise just to submit oneself to whatever's happening. If we're not really balanced, that's not so wise. You know, if something really awful and hard is coming through, sometimes we need to do other things, like like give like come back to balance in some way, take a walk, talk to a friend. Sometimes there's balance and we can be with it. And so that's an important qualification uh, to, to to that teaching. So we learn how to be present. It's a big part of the training of mindfulness is to learn to be with the unpleasant and watch what we do with it. Watch what we do with different kinds of unpleasant experiences. And we can also deliberately develop compassion we can, um, we can not just be with compassion in a more uh, receptive way, but we can also actively work to develop compassion in a few different ways. We can do a practice like um, the compassion practice in the Brahma Vihara. We can do the practice like loving-kindness and, and cultivate compassion deliberately. We can bring ourselves to just be with situations where there's some suffering. You know, it's like Thich Nhat Hanh says, find where there's suffering and don't turn away from it. Even at times as a practice to go into suffering. could be to make an effort to be with a friend who's suffering, to watch whatever tendencies there are not to go there, but to deliberately go where there's suffering, whether it's in one's family, or network of friends, or the larger community, to deliberately go into that, uh, to actively respond. Because there generally with compassion, there are these two aspects. One is, is the empathic aspect, the receptive aspect, and the other is the active response, which is to wish to respond to help. And that becomes the way, that becomes, that's the element of action. So ultimately, this balance of emptiness and compassion isn't just meditative, but it also involves action or response. And again, this can take many, many, many forms. There is compassion just in being with my own pain, because I think the training of being with our own pain is really central. It's very hard to be with another's pain if we can't be with our own, or if we can't be with our own suffering. So when suffering arises in our own experience, it's really an opportunity to train further. Again, assuming that there's a general balance. So we just to be with our difficult experiences like that. We can also, on the basis of that, as we explore that more, it can be expressed just in a more active way as a simple kindness that we have with others. Possibly based on just knowing in a sense that we all have this human life which has its challenges. None of us chose to be here, right? Probably, maybe, maybe some of us thought, but we're here. And we have these bodies which won't last forever. We have these minds which get distracted a lot. That's not the worst thing they do, <laughs> you know? And we have, uh, and we're aware of the suffering in the world Somehow, somehow things are arranged so there's a lot of suffering in the world. You know, and we share that. We share that consciousness. You know, and it's challenging. And we can have some sense of compassion. There, there's one of my favorite poems by a Woodacre poet named Roger Keyes. Has these lines in it. He says. Uh, he says. Every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. Every one of us is frightened. Every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. You know? So we may have a kindness which just comes out of that. You know, and there are exercises as we do the Brahma-vihara practice of just using phrases like in loving-kindness where we just say to ourselves and others, May I be free of suffering and the roots of suffering. And we do that with ourselves and others. There's a way that that practice tends to tune us in to make us able to tune in and be with suffering in ourselves and others. And so, and there are other exercises that help us to do that where we just, not that that's our only focus, but we are able to tune in and be aware and we can be aware that all of us have some suffering. You know, all of us have had challenges and difficulties. And compassion may be just carrying that understanding in every interaction. That's compassion. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be uh, Mother Teresa style, her level. So we can have that quality of, of um, kindness. Um, there also are people who may inspire us with their their compassion, who've done some very amazing things, who uh, people like maybe Mother Teresa or Albert Schweitzer or some of you probably maybe have read the book about uh, Paul Farmer who has uh, gone to Haiti and other places, uh, a doctor you know, who I think, I think was trained at Harvard, who and there's a book by Tracy Kidder I think it's called, anyone know the title? I Beyond think it's Mountains Mountains
1: Beyond, huh? Beyond, Beyond, Mountains. Beyond Mountains.
0: Mountains Beyond Mountains? Mm-hmm. Some, yeah, and it's especially about his work in Haiti. Beautiful book, very inspiring. So these people who can inspire us by their sense of meeting the suffering of the world. You know, a book which I read last year, I think, was by a man named James Orbinski uh, called An Imperfect Offering, which was about his work with Doctors Without Borders. And particularly in Somalia, and he was he was in Rwanda during part of the uh, genocide. You know, it's a harrowing book to read; it's very intense. But he has this—you know—he and others have this vocation just to go to places of great collective suffering and respond. You know, and I thought I'd read something from from his um, from his book. He says humanitarianism is about more than medical efficiency or technical competence. And he actually was president or uh, chair or whatever, the director maybe, of Doctors Without Borders when they won the Nobel uh, Peace Prize in 1999. A beautiful book. Uh, He says, humanitarianism is about more than medical efficiency or technical competence. In its first moment, in its sacred present, humanitarianism seeks to relieve the immediacy of suffering, and most especially, of suffering alone. In our choice to be with those who suffer, compassion leads not simply to pity, but to solidarity. It's a sense of interconnection. Through pity, we respond to the other as a kind of object and can assume a kind of apolitical stance. So it's interesting, he's naming pity, which in the Buddhist teachings, pity is the near enemy of compassion. You may remember, it's quite interesting. He doesn't, I'm sure, know anything about Buddhist practice. My guess, maybe he does. Um, we through pity we respond to the other as a kind of object and can assume a kind of apolitical stance on the causes of and the conditions that create such suffering as though these lie somehow outside the responsibility of politics and as though clarity and philanthropy are adequate responses. In being with the victim, one refuses to accept what is an unacceptable assault on the dignity of the other and thus on the self. Humanitarianism involves an insistence that international humanitarian law be applied and a call to others to act as citizens to demand that governments respect basic human dignity. So it involves compassion, in his case, involves a political stance to respect international law. Solidarity implies a willingness to confront the causes and conditions of suffering that persist in destroying dignity and to demand a minimum respect for human life. Solidarity also means recognizing the dignity and autonomy of others and asserting the right of others to make choices about their own destiny. Humanitarianism is about the struggle to create the space to be fully human. So, powerful book, and bringing that into some of the most uh, um, difficult conditions that there are Don, could you say that last name again, please? humanitarianism is about the struggle to create the space to be fully human what? James Orbinski O-R-B-I-N-S-K-I, An Imperfect Offering is the name of the book so how to make then the connection between compassion and emptiness I think we're starting to see it in the sense of interconnection, in the sense really of coming to see that others that other suffering matters and touches us. You know, there is a there's a beautiful poem that uh, Mary Oliver wrote, which I don't I don't know if I'll read the whole thing. Maybe maybe I'll read it uh, that I heard first from uh, Joseph Goldstein. And it's from her collected work. It's a a poem called Beyond the Snowbelt," And it's about, you know, she's talking about um, how there's been a storm that's really caused a lot of damage and people have been hurt, but it's two counties away. And she, she reflects on that. Over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. And scared and smiling citizens once more sweep down their easy paths of pride and welcome. And what else might we do? Let us be truthful. Two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away. A land of trees, a wing upon a map, a wild place never visited, so we forget with each uh, we forget with ease each far mortality. Peacefully from our frozen yards we watch our children running on the mild white hills. This is the landscape that we understand. Until the principle of things takes root, how shall examples move us from our calm? I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. Except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. So this tendency, um, unless we have that sense of interconnection developed, others' suffering appears as from a distant land and not so relevant. That's kind of the horizon of our practice. And I was thinking just how much that sense of interconnection matters. I was thinking of an experience I had in 1991 when, uh, in that summer, I visited the former Soviet Union (coughs) and spent two weeks there and got to know a lot of people and really felt very connected there. Some of my ancestors, uh, in fact, uh, all of my grandparents came from the former Soviet Union. It wasn't the Soviet Union then, but it was that land. So, and being there felt very connected. In August, you may remember, there was an attempted coup and we had a Buddhist Peace Fellowship summer institute that summer. Had about 100, 150 people there, and it was six days. And on the, I think on the fifth day, we learned about the attempted coup. If you remember, they had taken Gorbachev. Uh, the, you know, the military had arrested him, and you know it was unclear what would happen. You know, it was a real, for me, it was a, seemed like a real possibility that it would go back to a more, this more cruel government that Gorbachev had countered. And I remember there were several of us who had connections and we, we just um, started that morning. Um, we announced the news and then we just had this open space where we just asked people to name the names of people they knew who lived in the Soviet Union. and A lot of people knew people and then we just did that for like half an hour just naming, naming those names, and, and that traveling and that connection made uh, that not news from a distant land it felt very connected. So as we as we develop that compassion, that sense of interconnection, there's that moving away from that sense of a separate solid self. You know, to, so that news increasingly is not from a distant land. Sometimes News from our friends can feel like it's from a distant land if we're if we're in a cut off place without compassion, right? So that's that's in a sense, that's in a sense our practice, you know, that we we learn how to open up to that sense of interconnection. I think I'll, I'll close with um, one of the expressions that this is really the direction or the horizon, or it's maybe how we are at our best. At our, at our best, maybe we can have that sense of interconnection. And this is from Shantideva from the 8th century who talks about how when we develop deeply that sense of empty, uh, emptiness and compassion, that there's more a sense that we're all one body, more and more. And that when someone is hurting, it's like a limb of my body hurting. In an analogous way, I wouldn't hurt another because it's part of my own body. So this is what he says. I'll, I'll read, I'll read um, this, this to close. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what is so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return." This is his account of that mature development of emptiness and compassion where there's action that comes increasingly out of a sense of interconnection. And maybe, maybe I'll close more uh, with one more passage. It's, it's a similar thing very much on the mind of people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. this This is maybe more familiar. This is another way of saying it in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Some of you probably remember this. He said, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So let's just sit with this for a minute or so. Thank you so much for your attention. So questions or reflections? Please, yeah.
1: Um, reflecting back on St. Francis, another thing he said that I really like is I uh, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use
0: words. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, it's really pointing to the way that um, yeah, that we can, it really, ultimately, this is, uh, in its mature state, maybe it's, a, it's more and more in our bones, right? It's in our guts, our bones, how we are. Or it's going to that sense of, many psychologists say that 70% of our communication is nonverbal, right? And we tend to give a lot of weight to the words, yeah. Thank you. Say that again
1: gospel
0: at all times and if necessary use words. Preach the gospel at all times if necessary use words. Very good. Uh, George, please. Uh, yes, that uh, I, I was wondering about the interconnectedness of everybody If maybe it's a na- our natural state because I'm thinking of the, in the animal kingdom uh, this occurs naturally. I'm thinking of flocks of birds that seem to have a sense of the whole flock and fish yeah forms of fish that Act as one thing, and I, I, I kind of, I've never been a bird that I know of. But, <laughs> it's sort of the feeling of emptiness of the birds. They just know they're they're just working with, with the whole flock somehow. Yeah, I mean uh, it's kind of, it's a mysterious thing, uh, it's rather intuitive or something. Right, kind of that that many animals have this tremendous sense of network. Um, birds flying or ants or. Many, many, many kinds of animals. Of course, there are animals where they're more solitary. And it's, I think it's an interesting question because I think there is something mysterious about our individuation. And I don't at all want to say that that's a mistake, the sense of being an individual. And especially that has been developed to a fairly high degree in Western culture and increasingly the world. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons that this is a challenging teaching for us, because of our context. Uh, because in many ways, the challenge is, what would a highly, you know, there, there is a way in which, uh, from an evolutionary point of view of social evolution, there's been a movement away from a more, um, well, the negative side of it would be called conformist. Or, um, but it would be a way that, peop- that there isn't so much individuality in, it seems, in, in, in um, some cultures or more, much more of a collective sense. And, uh, and there, I think there's something positive that can be there in the development of individuality, but it's really a question of, has that gone to certain extremes in this culture? I, I would say yes. Yeah. and is there a way to have that sense of individuality and still be in that flock? So it's, I think it's it's actually uh, gets complex in that way because there are certain um, qualities that are there that uh, can be valued, a sense of individuation or really kind of a unique vocation, unique gifts, not just being part of the mass or being part of the collective, but how does that how does that coexist with a sense of interconnection? So I'm I'm kind of taking it a step further, but saying we need to find our version of that. But also wanting to say that it's complex because of who we are in the particular um, evolutionary time that we're at right now, where where I think both are, are called for. But it's more like we've, you know, our level of individualism has gone to a certain extreme where it's like the ultimate reality is everyone sitting at home watching TV by themselves. That's, an, that's a kind of extreme version of where the culture, you know, are sitting on a computer. Yeah, please. Um, I just have a question about, I find it easier to have compassion for people suffering, but I don't know compassion
1: for, I don't know, the more I read and the more I meditate through the, the culture. Yeah.
0: No, you're you're doing well. Yeah. Um,
1: trying to be an individual, still feel connected to the culture and feel compassion. Sometimes for a cult, the a big culture culture that I I'm having a hard time.
0: Yeah. I'm having a hard time feeling compassion for it. Not individuals who are suffering, but just yeah. sort of the collective culture. Yeah. So the uh, question about. Difficulty having compassion for a culture that you may be critical of in certain, in certain ways. And, um, well, um, yeah, it's challenging or, to be compassionate towards, you know, your choice of politicians you don't like. Now, we, we regard this as advanced training. That's an important point. So we we don't start there, but we start with the you know, that may be that may be most difficult or very difficult. So you can start earlier. Don't go there too quickly. Or maybe you can just see how it is. How do I feel towards, you know, a culture that I find lacking, maybe in certain ways. But start more with the kind of everyday compassion and, and recognize that the it's like in the loving kindness practice if we've done the training there we know that we start where the loving kindness flows more easily and then we get to the really diff- we get to a difficult person after a while so the same thing with compassion start where it flows more easily and where it's a little simpler with yourself with people close to you and yeah and it's hard it's and and some of the larger situations rather whether it's the culture or knowing how to respond to you know what we read about in the newspapers—it's not so easy. It's—I think—I think the challenge for all of us is somehow to find really uh, practical, workable ways to let our compassion come into motion. You know, and I—I want to bow to uh, Nancy, who has this wonderful project and had a film what, last week on on her work as a physician with the uh, Native communities in um, South Dakota. And maybe I was thinking maybe we could bring that film here one, sometime if that, if that can work. But, but it's like, how do we find a really workable, manageable way to have the compassion come into motion? Not the, you know, because sometimes we think about the big ones, it's really hard. So how can I make it workable, and manageable? And, you know, both on an experiential level, it means starting more simply, or, or keeping on knowing that, that that the more I stay with my own suffering, and I'm just with the suffering of others, and maybe it means I make a special effort to be with my relative who's having a hard time, or my friend who's having, and that's a very practical way to stretch my compassion, right? Not to start with the most difficult. Yeah. So it's it's a great question because it really it really invites that sense of what's a uh, of responding, what's a practical way for me to take the next step or two in cultivating compassion. Just the next. That's all we want. Just the next step or two. Is there something that calls for me, that is that is somewhat workable? Yeah. yeah. Maybe uh, last
1: one, um, Karen, please. Um, I'm wondering, uh, when you, uh, I'm of a very sensitive nature, and yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear people talking. Um, so uh, I feel like I do pick news up. Um, on the other hand, you know, when the big tragedies hit,
0: like the tsunamis and 9 and, yeah. 11, um, you know, even the
1: small ones, even the small difficulties when you hear about somebody you love and they have cancer and I'm mean, small compared to those ones. Um, I'm just wondering. It's a very concrete little question. When I hear receive that news, the first thing, if I catch myself, I tend to do to just help with me not feeling knocked back mm-hmm. and, and overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. You know, just the feelings. is mm-hmm. I tend to just offer a prayer mm-hmm. right away silently to just help ameliorate that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Um, but I'm wondering, do you have an immediate response when you hear something of a very dramatic nature or just affect, hits you that way. What's your immediate react, you know, how do you how do you feel it at that moment? Do you have a little strategy?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well it's a long it's a it's really um, maybe a longer term strategy because it's a huge question. It's really about how can I open up my heart to a wider range of experiences without being knocked around, you know. And there, there are a few things that occur to me, um, and, I, and I think personally it's been, you know, it's just been a growing experience and learning. One thing that, you know, there, there are these practices that we can do, you know, so more and, you know, so simply familiarity with being in the space of suffering and going there and finding small, you know, so we find small ways to train ourselves. We That's that's really the principle of all of what we do in meditation. We, we find smaller venues where we move things along some and train. So that's one, and we can do exercises and practices. A second part, which is I didn't really get for a while, is that there is an interest that it's actually, I think, um, very important to be grounded with the earth and in our bodies to be able to hold things. That I think for a long time my strategy was I have a sensitive heart, I'll just be open to things and I would get knocked around a lot. And I found that there, at a certain point there was an important piece of, you know, some of it was just coming more and more into my body so that it wasn't just my heart and actually developing quite consciously a center in the belly you know, which can be developed in certain ways, which is like what's developed in martial arts. And developing a groundedness in the body, a connection with the earth, and a centeredness so the heart's not the only center working. So you kind of have different reference points internally. So this, be, this would suggest certain kinds of body practices that develop the... the it, it really is connected ultimately with equanimity also, to develop the body so that... When the heart gets really affected, it doesn't just knock the whole organism around, but you kind of have another reference point or two. And that's been very, very important. You know, so, and, and, and knowing, you know, and then there's a lot we could say, I and mean, it could be a whole talk, but maybe. So, second thing, really huge be grounded in the body. And there's so many people, and I, you know, once I did a lot of that work, I could see so many people, very beautiful, sensitive, but they don't have the groundedness in the body, and so there's a way that the, um, the sensitivity um, can lead to overwhelm pretty, pretty easily without that, and, and maybe leads to being a little scared of going into certain territories, understandably that's the second and maybe the third would just be knowing strategies that bring you back to balance or knowing, you know, knowing what to do like be with, be with beauty, you know, when there's fear, be with beauty and be with things that inspire you, know how to kind of come back to balance. But I think probably for a lot of us that second is quite, it's quite significant. Yeah. So let's just sit to finish and Really closing this uh, cycle of these, we could probably continue on with this a lot, but I think I will. My intuition says to finish this cycle, and maybe we'll deal with distraction next week. <laughs> so, uh, but to unless there's popular acclaim in a, sh- in a brief, in a short time, <laughs> uh, but but to recognize this cycle of connecting this emptiness, con- interconnection, cultivation with um, cultivation of compassion, and seeing how they are, they're connected. Really, this crucial, beautiful teaching, beautifully expressed in that, those last lines of the poem. Except as we have loved. except as the compassionate heart opens. All news arrives as from a distant land. There's not a sense of interconnection unless there is that heart and compassion. Except as we have loved, all news arrives as if from a distant land. Let's just sit and let any intentions from the morning be there. practice not just for ourselves but for others as an expression of this understanding of the unity of emptiness and compassion we offer what's been valuable from the morning out beyond these walls out into the world for the benefit of all beings